Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. We're continuing this morning with the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a book that is, is long, and so we're going to work through this. You might be wondering our pace at this point. Uh, we're on chapter one, and this is our fourth Sunday uh, in the book of Isaiah. We will adjust the pace at various points. We will get through this, this whole book um, over the next months. But as we come to a book like this, this is a, an important book, as all of Scripture is, but this is a central book to understand really the, the whole flow of the story of what God is doing, his redemptive work. Isaiah prophesies primarily to Judah and Jerusalem in a time where sort of the northern kingdom, Israel has already sort of gone astray. Assyria is the dominant threat and is soon to sort of engulf uh, Israel. And Judah now is confronted by this prophet, a prophet who comes and says, even as you see God punishing, God bringing judgment on those who have went away, this is not just for sort of people out there. It's also for you, and Isaiah confronts uh, God's people in Jerusalem and in Judea with their sin, sins that on the surface might not seem as, as startling and shocking as God treats them, sins that maybe we've become comfortable with. And what we see through this whole book is a couple of things. One, that God has not changed. His character is the same. He is still a God of grace and a God of justice, a God who in his full holiness sees sin and must do something about it. And yet, throughout this book, even on darkest moments where it just seems like there is judgment, there's always this note of hope. There's this note that God is doing something. He's going somewhere, that his justice is constructive and moving us towards a good end. And we'll see some of those notes this morning as we are confronted in our sin, but also assured of hope that Christ offers us. So would we stand this morning for the reading of God's word? Our passage is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 31. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this, this passage, one that is full of, of warnings, notes of grace, Lord, would you help us understand it? Would you help us not just dismiss it as distant words to a distant group of people, but as something that is spoken even by the power of your Spirit to us today? Lord, would we heed these words? Would we respond to them with hope, with even thanksgiving? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The question that this passage really poses is, can this be restored? I don't know if any of you like going to, uh, to garage sales, where you go around and you look at stuff. I know some, sometimes these, these happen. And, and sometimes I've gone with um, some of my grandparents, and the question that they're asking is, could we fix this thing up? Could we restore it? Whether it's a piece of furniture or an old blender or whatever it might be, can we fix this? Can we restore this? Maybe you ask that question too. Maybe you restore cars, houses, furniture, antiques, whatever it might be. And we have this desire when something is broken, when something is sort of tarnished or not the way that it, it once was, can we restore this? And sometimes the answer is, is no. Sometimes something is, is too far gone to be restored. There's just really no hope. It's not, it's not worth the effort. It's not worth the time. It won't work in the end. So why would you, why would you bother? At this moment in this text, that could be the way that God answers this question, can this be restored? Things are very bleak. His description of his people is, is one that we'll see in a moment is, is shocking. It's startling how far things have deteriorated, how much restoration is needed. And as we see in the book of Isaiah, so often what is true of, of God's people here, of Judah, is, is also true of you and I. That you and I need to be restored. There are parts of our life that are so impacted by sin, whether you've accepted Christ or you really have no idea who Christ is, our lives are in need of God's grace, his restoration, his returning to what is right and good and true. And what's surprising in this text is where God begins to say, this is where you need restoration, is, is probably not where God's people thought they needed to be restored. They thought they were doing fairly well. Sure, there was some idolatry going on. Sure, there was some leadership that wasn't, you know, perfect. But they didn't, they didn't think they were that far gone. And what God's Word does through a book like Isaiah is it begins to expose in us our need for restoration, our need as sinners to see God's mercy come in and, and, and restore us. What, what God's people have done here is functionally they've rejected the core of what they were supposed to be doing. What were God's people supposed to be doing? Well, they were to worship God, and they were to, as a reflection of that, care for those around them. When God called Abraham, he called them to be blessed by God, but also to be a blessing to those who are around him. God's people have fallen short of that. They are not doing what they are called to do. And so the question is, can this be restored with this this shocking charge against them? Look at verse 21. It says this, "How how the faithful city has become a whore. Now, just, just focus a moment on that, that language of a faithful city. It's talking about Zion, the city, sort of Jerusalem. It's the sort of way of representing all of God's people. When we talk about this, we're not talking about just the few people that might happen to live there. It's sort of a representative place for all of God's people. And this was a place that was full of faithfulness. They were worshiping God. They were caring for those who were in need and who were, were vulnerable. So much so that she was full of justice. Things were going well. People were getting fair treatment, fair trials. All of this was was going well, so much so that it says righteousness lodged in her. That's that's a unique sort of way of phrasing that. Righteousness took up residence there. It was a, a shining hill. It was a good city. It was faithful. It was wonderful. It was doing the things that God had asked them to do. There was fitting worship of God in all of his glory. There was a, a flourishing community that cared for one another. And it's almost in that wonderful picture of the faithfulness that this shocking contrast is, is given. 
first part of verse 21 there, this, this language that is, is startling. Maybe we've heard it enough in church. We know that sort of Israel, God's people, are the bride, and there's, there's God. There's sort of this covenant. It's like a marriage. We, we understand that language, and so we understand that breaking it, this stark language is, is used. But that should startle us this morning. That language like this is applied to the people that God called and chose and, and gave his, his covenant to, his law to, his love to, his care for, his protection. And now they've become unfaithful, unchaste, re- rebellious. This is not sort of someone who was forced into this sort of prostitution. It's someone who willfully chose it, who looked at their husband and said, that's not good enough. And a desire something else. That language of desire is reflected later in verse 29 where it talks about desiring oak trees. Now that's talking about sort of idolatry, other religions, things that looked more promising. Oak trees probably don't look attractive to us, but we know what it's like to see things in society that say it's just easier, it's more convenient. I know I should be faithful to God. I know I should do the things he's called me to do, but, but they're inconvenient. They're difficult. These people would have to go all the way to to Jerusalem to worship God. Why not just worship where we are? Why not sort of create our own thing that works for us rather than submit to what God is calling them to do? They become unfaithful. And as as we see, the description here continues in verse 22 where it says, Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water started with sort of this marriage image of sort of the wife, the, the sort of crown jewel of this thing. And then down there, there's this language of uh, the silver, which is important, and the wine, which is even less important. And all of these things, which are good and right in and of themselves, are, are polluted. They're not treated in the way that they should be. Your silver has become dross. Now, we're probably not familiar with sort of the metallurgy side of these things, but we know that metals, they need to be refined, right? And as you refine them, there's dross. There's sort of slag and scum that gets produced. And, and the, the very sort of waste product of this process is what the very thing that should be good has become. It's an image that should be showing the, the worthlessness of what they are doing. Your best wine mixed with water. A priceless bottle of wine just sort of watered down. It's worthless. It's tarnished. It's like the last, you know, you have a large drink with ice in it, and the last couple inches are just, you don't want to drink it. It's, it's, it's nasty. It's, it's worthless. This is, this is what has happened to God's holy people. This is shocking. This is abominable. This is something that should startle them out of their complacency. Because God's people, as we've seen earlier in Isaiah, have become forgetful, complacent. They just sort of go about the motions. God's going to love us. He's going to care for us. Everything's going to go well. And yet here he says these strong words. Verse 23, your princes are rebels. Those who should lead you, the princes are not sort of this privileged class. They're the ones who are to care for God's people, to lead his people, to lead them in righteousness and justice. And they're rebels, companions of of thieves. That's who they associate. Everyone loves a bribe and everyone runs after gifts. So that the end effect here is that those who need justice, those who need the help of these princes, they can't even have their case heard. The fatherless, the orphans, and the widows don't get what they are due. They don't have a standing in the society. And that's so diametrically opposed to what God had asked his people to do. We look back at Exodus 22 and verse, verse 22, the language is very clear there that God's people are to care for orphans and widows. It's baked into the covenant obligations. I've chosen you. What you do is you live out and you are a blessing to those around you, especially those who are fatherless. 
especially those who are are widows, those who have no sort of standing in the society, nothing to support and sustain them, and and God's people here have turned their back on those. They've gone away from them. Often in the book of Isaiah, as we go through this, we'll see these words, justice and righteousness, when they're put together, they're really often talking about the care for those who are, are vulnerable. Righteousness is the idea of sort of the the right idea or the right belief. Justice is actually living it out. And so God puts these things together and says, it's here that you have have failed, that you have declined. Your leaders have not cared for for those. It's familiar language for us if we know the book of James, right? What religion does God ask? That we would care for orphans and widows in their distress and keep themselves from being polluted by the world. It's that very same thing that God's people have neglected here. And it's not just that there's this one sin that God is sort of harping at. It's sort of, he's, he's highlighting the fact that functionally what God's people have done is they've turned their back on how the whole system that God has set up is supposed to work. When God called his people, go all the way back to, to Genesis, Genesis 1, right? God creates man how? In the image of God. That image-bearing standard is one that comes as a sort of a, a vice regent, one who represents God in the world. And that mantle is for all of humanity, but even uniquely for God's people as they know his law and his truth. As God calls them and makes a covenant with them, what does he say? That you are a priesthood, a holy nation. You are to be the ones who who live out what is true. You're to worship me, and you're to care for your neighbor. What God sets up in the Old Testament is the same thing that Jesus says when he summarizes the law in Matthew 22, right? Right? What is the first commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, to, to love your neighbor as, as yourself. This is what they have failed to do, the very, very, very purpose that God has put them there, to worship him, to serve those around them. They've, they've fallen down on both parts of that, that job. And it's, it's an, enormous, an enormous task that God has commissioned them. I don't know if you've, uh, well, I'm sure you've followed the news enough to know that uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away um, recently. And maybe you started watching all the documentaries that everybody, every channel has on, right? Uh, these 20-minute presentations on, on the Queen. I watched one recently, and they were talking about her, her coronation. And maybe uh, you remember watching videos of this, um, seeing the videos of it. And she was 25, this, this young, slight sovereign, and this mammoth crown, right, gets sort of set on her head. And it's this, this picture of responsibility being vested in this person, what she's supposed to do. Um, interestingly, C.S. Lewis, who was alive at that time, wrote a letter to a friend commenting on this, this moment. And this is what Lewis said. He said, the pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent, and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. And as, as we read a passage like this, maybe you, you get that sense of inadequacy. What God is calling us to do is something that is, is large, to worship God fully, to care for each other fully. That is, that is not sort of a, a slight thing that we just do on the side. It's our very purpose, the very core of how we live and act in our church and in our society. This is, this is who we are. This is what we're called to do. And so as we reflect on this, even in our, in our own day, we look also to ourselves and say, where have we failed to do these things? Where have we not done what, what Judah has not done? Where have we failed? Where have we uh, maybe taken a bribe? Not maybe literally, but where has being faithful to God become so inconvenient that we say, it's just easier to stay over here. 
I know God might be asking me to do this, calling me to this, but it's, it's inconvenient. It's, either to, it's easier to, to take the bribe, so to speak, or it's easier just to sort of look the other way and, and focus on my own priorities and my own little, own little world instead of what God is, is calling us to do. Isaiah is going to ask us and invite us even to ask some very difficult questions about ourselves. Where have we been unfaithful? Where, where is there dross in our life? Where are there things that need to be refined, changed, taken out, that aren't, aren't reflective of what God is calling us to do and his purpose? Where are those things? Where is our best wine mixed with water? And, and as we, we look at ourselves, the answer is probably going to be often and frequent. There are often places in our life uh, that, that are, are reflective of this, this failure. And as we see that, to, it, this invites us to be, to be shocked at our sin, and, and I think we, we know that theologically. We know that our sin is, is revolting. We know that it's problematic. Maybe you've heard the language that it's, it's cosmic treason from R.C. Sproul, this language that sort of highlights just how, how terrible our sin is. And, and I think we need to see it even in this language of, of the covenant of marriage that has been fractured. Our infidelity is like this to God. It's that shocking. It's that difficult But the good news for us is even as these first verses give us this this picture, we see a therefore. And at first, the therefore might look uh, problematic. It might look even worse for us. And at the beginning, it it might actually be that way. But in this next part, we see God's refining turn in verse 24 where it says, Therefore, the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Note that the first sort of sense here is, is one of God's just total power, his total control. The Lord of hosts, not the covenantal name of God, but the Lord of hosts, the one who is sovereign, the one who is in control, the one who has absolute power. This is who we're dealing with. And what does he say? Ah, I will get relief for my enemies and will avenge myself on my foes. That first little phrase there, the ah, is one of, of, of almost lament, almost grief. It's, it's a note of, of sadness. It seems that God is not relishing what is about to, to happen because who does he react to. He says, I will get relief from my enemies. And who's he talking about? Is he talking about the Assyrians who are going to come and and sort of bring judgment? Is he coming about the Babylonians who are also going to come and bring judgments? No, if we look at verse 25, who is he talking about? He's talking about Judah. He's referring to his people as his enemies. That's startling. So far have they transgressed that, that he says, I will avenge myself on my foes. And then there's this language of turning. Now, verse 26 and verse 27 start with the same word in Hebrew. It's really difficult, apparently, to render that into the English. But there's this dual purpose as God turns his hand towards his people. First, in verse 25, it says this, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. This is a refining move. It is a a painful move. God's people are going to go into exile. There are going to be difficult things that they experience as God confronts their sin. Just like us when we experience God's discipline. We read it in Revelations chapter 3 today that God disciplines those he he loves. There is constructive discipline that happens. Maybe you know this as, as a parent, right? You've instructed your child numerous times, and then there becomes this point where it says, okay, experientially, you're going to have to realize that I, I'm, I'm preventing something. I'm, I'm protecting you for something, whether it's, you know, the proverbial hot stove or just, you know, the swings, right? You know, kid is on a swing, 
don't run in front of that. You're going to get hit. And then eventually somebody gets hit, and then they realize, okay, there, there's a reason that my father, my parent, even my, my sovereign God here is telling me these things. And that's, that's what God begins to do here. He, he smelts away the dross as with lye. It's sort of a, a cleaning process to clean out what is, is rotten and sinful in us. Remember when we moved to, to Texas, um, somebody gave us a sort of a little housewarming gift, a cleaning solution. I don't know if you've ever been given a cleaning solution as a housewarming present, um, but it was actually really appreciated. It was a, a hard water cleaner. I'm, I can't remember the, the brand of it, but it, it worked really well. Um, there was some hard water in our house when we first moved in, uh, kind of stains, and, and it, it cleaned it right up. And that, that's sort of what God is talking about here. I'm going to use my, my cleaning, my, my power, my, my even my, my justice, my righteousness, my wrath over sin to purify you, to point out what is, what is wrong and what needs to be changed. Even here, there's a note of grace that God would do this. We'll see later in this passage that if we don't respond to this, if we don't receive sort of the grace, repent of our sins, there's another sort of fire that is not consumed, one that is not quenched, one that just doesn't have a purifying intent but a a punishing intent. That's what the last verses of this this, uh, passage reveal. But but here there's this this turn of God to restore. Uh, Verse 26, again, this turning, restoring, turning language, your judges... At, at, as at the first, your counselors as at the beginning. He's, he's pointing of saying, when things were early, things were better. When you listened to your counselors, when you had good leadership in your churches, in your communities, that was good. And it looks then also forward. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. It's a return to where we saw at the beginning. It was lamented in verse 1 how the faithful city has sort of deteriorated. Now the faithful city is restored. And this is what we have hope for throughout the book of Isaiah, that there is going to be a faithful city. And we see glimmers of it. We see glimmers of it in history. There's been a, every sort of uh, reformation, every sort of revival in the church has led to somebody saying, we are the new Jerusalem. And some of that's reflective of a desire to, to read Scripture and find it expressed in our day. And, and that's part of what we see in Isaiah, but it also always looks forward to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. The wedding feast of the Lamb, where the unfaithful people are made pure by the blood of the Lamb and partake of this meal together. It's a note looking far forward that even the original people hearing this might not have, have associated with all that was to come, but as we read through Isaiah, we'll see more and more pointing towards that day when all faithfulness and righteousness is, is fully on display, when all things are brought to the way they, they should be. And so as we, as we hear this, as we look at a passage like this, and again, the question is, where do we need to be refined? Where are there places in our life that we need the dross sort of to be smelted away, uh, remove all the alloy in our life. I know those are sort of metaphorical ways of talking about our sanctification and our growth in Christ, but, but where are there places that, that we have not done what God is calling us to? Maybe in our worship. Where have we given over to idolatry? This language later in the psalm, and, or in the passage in verse 30, where it talks about your oaks, and the wee leaves withering. Where have we sort of looked at these things and said, I, you know, I, I believe in God, I worship God, just like these people were doing, but I'm also going to sort of take in and compartmentalize this other sort of belief system into my life about how things really work, what really leads to happiness, what really leads to success 
in my finances, in my time, in my entertainment, in all of those things? Where have I sort of brought that in, even as these people did with these oaks that they desired and eventually were ashamed of? Again, these, these hard questions. It's, it's similar maybe to what we see in Matthew 25 where, where people are coming to Jesus and having a, a question and, and he sort of reveals the fact that there are some that exist within God's people that really don't know who, who Jesus is. They really don't know who God is. They really haven't repented of their sins and turned to the grace that God offers. They haven't lived that out. And they ask Jesus, when did we see you hungry, thirsty? When did I see you sick or without clothes? When did I see you in prison? And and these are questions that that sometimes we need to turn back on ourselves, not as these people out there who who struggle with sin, who aren't faithful, but realize that that sometimes we look a little bit like Judah. We look like Jerusalem, who maybe was faithful, but over the years have just become complacent. I've let little things slip, little things go, and we haven't seen the wonder of sort of, as, as even we saw with that, illustration of Queen Elizabeth, that we have been invested with this high call to worship God and to serve, and to do that fully in our families, in our communities, in our churches, to live that out in a way that is, is pleasing to God. This is maybe a, a difficult passage. I don't, I don't like passages like this. It reminds you of, a, I don't know if you've been to the dentist recently. Um, I, I went to the dentist a few years ago, and he was looking in my mouth, and I, I'm missing a tooth, so I've got a dental implant in the back, and he says, this doesn't look good. It's never a good thing to hear at a dentist, right? And so he, he prescribed a procedure, and uh, the details of the procedure I'm not going to bring up because they, they weren't pleasant. It's like, I'm going to have to do this and this and this, but the end result was good. The end result was healing restorative. It was purging of what was wrong and, and restorative of what was right and good. And that's, that's what God is trying to do through the book of Isaiah, I think, through the power of his spirit, to expose in our hearts our need to repent. Look at verse 27. This is what it calls us to. It says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. This is, this is the real good news of this, this passage is that there is restoration. There is hope for us. That as we turn to God in Christ, there is actual redemption. Romans 3 verse 26 says that God is, the, is just and the justifier. The, the language here is not talking about us somehow having justice and, and righteousness and attaining that, but it's, it's saying that we repent by righteousness. How does that happen? Well, the Spirit of God works in us, exposes our sin, so that we come and begin to, to repent. To come and return, and, and repentance really is a, it's a saving grace where we as sinners turn from our sin, hate our sin, grieve over our sin, and turn towards and endeavor towards, towards new obedience. It always goes together. The, the repentance always leads to uh, fullness of, of life, of good, good deeds. Titus um, chapter 2 Verses 14 and 15 say this, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. It's the response that that we are to have as we, we come and repent, not just to sort of rest in the wonderful grace, but even as we rest in that grace to be moved forward in righteousness. Isaiah 56, verse 1, later in this book says this, it calls us to maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. It's the, the, the trajectory here. Even as we submit to God's grace and, and accept it, we move forward in righteousness to, to live and, and be zealous for good works, to bear fruit in keeping 
with repentance, as Matthew 3, 3 calls us to do. Now, it would be nice to end right there. But there, there are these other verses, aren't there? It doesn't end right at verse 27. There's, there's this shocking picture of sort of consumption. It says, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Now, this is talking not about just sanctification, but this is talking about rejecting God, his truth, the offer of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And if we do that, if we live a life that, that is totally sort of devoted to other things and not submitting to the truth of who God is and the offer of salvation, then this is what happens. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. The next generations will look at you and be ashamed of what you did, that you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Now, again, this is sort of a syncretism. This is a joining in of other pagan worship practices into the life of God's people, saying, I want a little bit of this because i got to cover my bases. Uh, idolatry here looked attractive. Um, and all of these things, what happens to them? Verse 30, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. That's what, what happens to us. I don't know if you have uh, live oaks where you live. Most of us probably have some near us. And have you noticed this phenomena? If an oak tree dies in your community, what happens? If you have neighborhood Facebook groups, there's this collective sort of panic. Is it live oak? Or is it oak wilt? Are all our oak trees going to die? There was one in, in our neighborhood by the, the gas station up here on 46 on Valero. There's a dead oak tree. And I remember there was collective panic in our neighborhood for a little while because people thought that all the oak trees were going to perish. Now, it's maybe humorous looking at it in our, in our context, not that that's a humorous thing to have happened, but in this context, that's what it's, it's looking at. There, there's this oak tree that was flourishing, and it withers because it didn't have the root structure. It didn't have the, the rain. It didn't have the nourishment and the flourishment, flourishing that Jesus offers. This passage is, is calling us to have in our minds, verse 31 says, and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. It's possible even that, that there's sort of a play there on, on building the idols out of oak, and that very thing that he worked on is the spark that ignites the, the consuming fire. They both shall burn together, and none to quench them. So it is a, a hard note to end a passage like this on. But it's one of those things that, that as we hear that, we don't have to be deeply concerned. Why? Because we know that as we repent, what happens? We are like the tree, to use Psalm 1, that is planted by streams of water. The tree that doesn't wither, the tree that doesn't sort of become tinder for the fire, but something that is, is built on the truth of who God is, that seeks to love God and love those around us, to flourish with the very purpose that God has offered. What we'll see again and again in the book of Isaiah, that God will call us to account for our sin, our complacency, our, our places where we are not doing what God has called us to do. And always as he does that, judgment is never the end of the story. There's always grace. There's always this looking to the new Jerusalem. There's always looking to some Savior, Redeemer, that is going to come and make this right. And so you and I, as we read this, should read it with conviction. We should, we should honestly ask and not skim over the hard parts. But even as we do that, we always keep one eye on the cross, on the hope and the righteousness that Christ offers. As we repent, he forgives fully and completely because of what Christ has done in full hope in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us understand words like this? Would you help us to understand our sin and where it needs to be sort of addressed, where it needs to be 
refined. Lord, would you make us people that, that care for those who are vulnerable, those who are in need. Lord, in our communities, and our lives, that we would find ways to do that more and more fully, knowing that it's a reflection of what you have done for us, that we were enemies, that we are far from you, that we were dead in our sins. We were vulnerable and, and impoverished spiritually. And you have given us the riches of your kingdom, true gold that is refined and perfect because of what you have done. A righteousness that is not our own, but is from Christ given to us. Would you cause us to rest in that hope and live out the righteousness you call us to? We ask in Christ's name, amen.